there are notes in the back. There might be some left. There's also notes on the website. And for those of you who don't need notes, just make sure you have your Bible. Because that's the note of notes. All right, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 as we just uh, move into an understanding of reconciliation, of God's reconciliation with us. And this is what Paul says. Verse 1, chapter 2, Ephesians. And you, meaning us, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then here's these two great words. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Father, we thank you for the reconciliation through your Son of us in relationship with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's, here's the deal. Reconciliation... Um, I looked up the dictionary. I actually went to a kid's dictionary to look it up to see if how they would make, help kids understand a big word. And it said, the definition of reconciliation is this. Two people who are once friends and then who weren't friends but are friends again. That's what reconciliation is. We were friends of God. Adam and Eve were friends of God. It says that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning have this great friendship with them. Adam broke the friendship. Jesus came back and paid the price to restore the friendship. And so we've been reconciled. So when we talk about the need for reconciliation, we talk about our, our relationship restored with God. Here's what's happened. Man used to be God's friend. Man broke the friendship. Jesus paid the price for the friendship to be restored. And we are now friends with God again. So here's the, the implications of Jesus' resurrection power in our lives. Um, Paul says, we were dead in trespasses and sin. And when he's talking about dead, he's not talking about this body dead. He's talking, um, he's talking not morally. He's not talking mentally. He's not talking physically. He's talking about that you and I were dead spiritually in our sins. See, the most, the most important part of our personality is our spirit. Our, our, our spirit is, is, is who we are. And um, 
and, and our spirit is dead to the most important factor of our life without Jesus, and that's God. And so um, we can still believe in God, but still be dead in trespasses and sins. Um, one of the uh, players in today's game, they, they had a, a video of him on Facebook, and um, the, the caption was, how uh, this young man has such a strong faith, and yet as he shared, he never talked about Jesus. He talked about God in a general sense. And, and the, the reality is this. Does, does a person have to be converted before they can believe in God? And the reality is no. In fact, the Bible says this. James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So even though demons believe in God, they're, they're not converted. So people can believe in God, believe that there is a God and can define him any way they want. And they could even believe and define God in the trueness of his character. But without accepting the work of the cross, without accepting what Jesus has done for us to reconcile us, to reestablish that friendship, believing is not enough. In fact, the Bible uses a, a lot of different pictures to describe unbelief or to describe people who might believe but are unsaved. Um, you know, people who believe and they're called the work of Christ are called blind. Um, they're called a slave to sin. They're called a lover of darkness under the power of darkness. They're called sick. They're called lost. They're called an alien, a stranger, a foreigner. They're called a child of wrath. So the reality is people can believe in God and not be saved. People can believe in God and still not have an eternal relationship with God. Trespasses speak of a man as a rebel. Sin speaks of man as a failure. When, when a sign says no trespassing, um, if you disallow that sign, if you ignore that sign, you are rebelling. It basically it says you cannot walk on this property. If you look at that sign that says no trespassing and you walk on that property, you're in rebellion to what that sign says. Okay? But sin speaks not of, not, not of our um, rebellion, although rebellion is a part of sin. Sin speaks of a brokenness of relationship with God because God cannot have a relationship with sin. God allows the rebellious to come to him and repent. Um, but sin is what separates us from God. And so the spirit and the word work upon us as men by rational motive, setting before us life and good and death and evil. Our old nature is no more extinct than the devil's. But God, um, God's will is that he would have dominion in our lives over our trespasses and over our sins. And so here, here's the thing. When, when he says this, at one time we lived in trespasses and sins. At one time we were rebellious and we were sinful according to the way the world thinks. When it says according to the course of the world. Um, I have never... I had a conversation with my friend everybody knows yesterday. Um, ribbon on the phone and we're having a conversation just about what's going on in our nation and and 
I told him, I said, you know what, if, if they actually believe some of the things they're saying, um, how sad it is that they're deceived that much. But if they know what they're saying isn't true, and they're saying it anyway, as if it is true, I said, how evil is that? And, and that's what it means when it says that we once lived in trespasses of sins according to the course of this world. Um, and, and so, and, and those types of thoughts, those types of motives are orchestrated by an evil one. And, and Paul tells us who it is. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And so Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is very active among those in rebellion against God. And he calls them the sons of disobedience. And so, but Paul says, look it, we were all sons of disobedience. When we look at people right now who are doing evil things or saying evil things, we need to remember we were once them. And until we embraced the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were ones who were um, not reconciled to God. We were not his friend. And we were to suffer the consequences for our sin. But so sin nature is inherited from Adam. Um, you know, and, and you may want to blame him, but you can't. Um, because the truth of the matter is sin is a choice. We, we don't sin. Um, you know, it's it's the old uh, the old the laugh in. Who is the guy laughing? You say the devil made me do it. Yeah, can I tell you the devil doesn't make you do anything. What he does is offers you opportunity. We still choose to do evil or good. We still choose to do right or wrong. So we inherited this sin nature from Adam, and even though we inherit it, um, but the influence of the old man lives on. In our flesh, we still, even though we are redeemed, we still get tempted. And even though we are redeemed, we still give in to temptation. Now, we may not give in to the temptations we gave in before we got saved. Some of those things have been, but we still give in to temptation. We give in to temptations of gossip. We give in to temptations of, of lying. We give in to temptations, of all kinds of temptations. So we still are flesh. We still are in this process and if we were made alive again, it'd be like this. So the self that once walked was the old man and now crucified with Jesus, we come to the time of conversion. Here's the thing. A dead man feels very comfortable in his coffin. Why? Because he's dead. But if you were put in a coffin and suddenly became alive. Yeah, I know. I was freaking out thinking about this too you know so it's one thing to be dead and comfortable people who are dead in their sins are comfortable in their sins but once life comes into us we want to break out of that which kept us in bondage and so if we're made alive again we instantly feel claustrophobic and we don't want to escape the coffin so we were once spiritually dead we felt comfortable in our trespasses and sins until the Holy Spirit came and revealed our sinfulness to us, and then suddenly we wanted to break out of that coffin. 
And we did by the spirit of reconciliation. We did so by the blood of Jesus that was shed for us and by accepting the work of the cross. So there's always a power. Listen, grab onto this because it's, it's a strong truth. There is always a power working within us. There's always a power working. It's either as sons of disobedience, which is sin, or as children of God, which is grace. Now, there's two verses in Ephesians. One we just read. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience, is working in people who has now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So Ephesians 2, we have the prince of darkness working in us. In Ephesians 3, we have the power of forgiveness working within us, and it's the same exact word. The working of sin and the working of grace the word working for both is exactly the same. So it, it means to be active, efficient, effectual, fervent, to be mighty. And so to work means it's used of Satan and unbelievers, and it's used of the power of God that works in believers. So we need to understand there's always a work. There's always power working in our life. It is either the power of the prince of the power of the air, or it is the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But we always have something of power working inside of us. We just decide which power we're going to submit to, which power we are going to walk in agreement with. So the prince of the power of the air, this, this title given to Satan, says two things to us. Number one, it tells us his authority. The Bible says Satan is a prince. Princes have more authorities than commoners. So he does have authority, and it tells us the realm of his authority, which is the air, or the heavenlies, or the environment in which Satan rules and reigns. Just, you need to know, this is what the Bible says. Satan, right now, is going back and forth between heaven and earth, and when he enters into the, he's allowed into the throne room right now. He's allowed, and what does he come into the throne room to do? He doesn't come into the throne room to worship God. He doesn't come to the throne room to acknowledge the work of Jesus has defeated him. It says he comes into the throne room to accuse you. He is coming before God as the prince of the power of the air, coming to God in the heavenlies, and he's approaching God to make an accusation against you. And his accusation is never, did you see how much time Rick spent reading the Bible today? No, it's, did you see that Rick only read one chapter today when his Bible reading said he needed to read three? He's always accusing, always looking, or, you know, that's really not a sin. I could talk about other sins. Did you see what Rick thought about that person that just cut him off on the road? Okay, there we go. Um, but the reality is, evil is always working, and grace is always working. And it's always working toward us. So the domain of the air, in fact, is another way of indicating the heavenly realm. When we get to Ephesians 6, Paul says that, uh, this, Ephesians 6, 12, this is the abode of the principalities and powers, rulers, world rulers of this darkness, spirit, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places are waging war against the people of God. So we need to be mindful of that. 
You need to be mindful that there is a battle going on every day for you. Even though you're saved, even though, Jesus, you've accepted the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection, and you have been reconciled to God, you need to understand that every day there is a battle going on in this realm called the heavenlies, this domain where Satan lives, and the Bible talks about it over and over and over, and that battle is this. That battle is for your mind. See, Satan can't touch your heart. He didn't touch Adam and Eve's heart. He came to them and he tricked their mind. He dealt with what they were thinking. And so if he can get you to think an evil thing, to justify an evil thing or a wrong thing or a sinful thing, if he can get you to feel comfortable in trespasses and not be convicted, that's what he wants to do. He's, he is not the ultimate ruler. But he's, since, he's a prince in the sense that evil men set him up for their sovereign, and they're wholly under his influence. So you and I every day are encountering people who, because they are not submitted to Jesus, they are submitted to the prince of the power of the air. They are sons of disobedience, and their actions and their thoughts and their words are motivated by the influence of this one who is in the heavenlies doing all he can to influence them against one person and one person only, those who have been redeemed, those who have been reconciled to Jesus. And, and we need to be mindful of that. Everything we see going on politically in our country, we can't look at it right here. We can't look at it as Democrat and Republican or this person or that person. We need to see what's going on up here. There is a battle going on right now. You, you understand, if you read Matthew 24, Jesus tells us, in fact, he's very clear. Jesus makes this statement. These things must happen in order for the Son of Man to return. So we need to know there is a battle going on right now for the supremacy of who is going to rule and reign and have influence over your life. And that's why, look at right now, and this is not about, a, this is not a political thing, and I don't want you to think I'm digressing to that, but right now on the Democrat side of our nation, there is a battle going on right there. The battle of socialism, which is, if you study or you look at the history of socialism, it always, always ends up extremely demonic or what they call progressivism. Both of those oppose Christianity. Progressivism does it in a much more subtle, covered up way. Socialism just says, you can't believe in God or we're gonna kill you. And we need to know that's a battle going on in our nation right now on one side. And people may think our nation is never gonna settle for that. If, if a socialist gets nominated to run for president, then they are gonna lose. But we need to know the enemy understands. He's a deceiver. Do you know deception is not an instant thing? Deception is a step-by-step -step slow thing. It's the, it's the frog in the kettle. You know, if, if, if they just came out right away and did everything they wanna do and blast it, even people who don't believe in God would, would the ACLU would actually be on the side of the church if they tried to jump in and do everything they want to do right now. But the enemy is subtly slowing. The prince of the power of the air is working with the sons of disobedience 
in order to do one thing and one thing alone. Shut you up. Do everything they can to challenge our even until uncan to challenge what it is we believe for even until unto the point of persecution and death. So we need to be mindful that that's why I, I think it's so important as we're going through Ephesians and as we'll go through Colossians and Philippians, it is so important for us to make sure our feet are firmly grounded in our identity in Jesus and that our faith is not based upon our circumstances. Our faith is based upon what Jesus has already done for us. And the regardless of what the prince of the power of the air is scheming to do with evil men, with sons of disobedience, in order to disrupt our life, in order to offend us with God, we need to make certain that we are grounded deeply in this word, that we fully understand who we are in Christ, and that nothing, 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 neither life nor death nor principalities nor rulers can separate us from the love of God. And that's Paul's heart here. He wants us to understand this process of personal reconciliation. You know, part of the, part of the deception of this day, and let me tell you something. The deception, I believe, the transitional deception leading to the end of the age began in the mid-60s and has continued slowly until today. Um, it began in the early 60s when they took prayer out of school. It began in the 70s with legalizing abortion. Um, it has begun this slow, slow process. And, and part of the deception is this. People will say, that because we're all humans, we're all of the family of God. So first of all, let me make one thing clear. There's nothing in the Bible that says God has a family. Okay? It says that we, and, and we are of the family of God and that God created us all. The only thing it says about the Bible is those who believe in Jesus are adopted sons and daughters. That's the family of God. Not humanity, but those who have been adopted through Jesus. But he does say that those who are not of God are of the family of Satan. Jesus says it. He called the Pharisees a family of snakes, a brood of vipers. He told the Pharisees in John 8, 44, he said, the devil is your father. So we need to understand that humanity is not the family of God. The redeemed are the sons and daughters of the Most High because we've been adopted. But everybody who is a son of disobedience, everyone who submits to the prince of the power of the air, is of the family of Satan, and the devil is their father. And they are walking in accordance with that. And so the process of personal reconciliation begins with this transitional statement. I think two of the two most powerful words in the Bible, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You could meditate on that verse every day for a year. But God, being rich in mercy, how has the richness of God's mercy been exemplified in your life? 
And what motivated that mercy? What makes that mercy alive and vibrant and active in your life every day is this. Because of the great love with which he loved us. And it says in 1 John, and this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation, or to put it in English, to be the payment, the sacrifice for our sin. We need to make certain, as the body of Christ, in this day, in this age, that we do not let the prince of the power of the air and the sons of darkness, the sons of evil, affect our thoughts and our beliefs to a place of compromise, to where we take the gospel and we somehow water it down to, more, to be more compliant and more acceptable by the sons of darkness. There is black and there is white. There is right and there is wrong. There is sin and there is grace. There is mercy and there is justice. And there is no in-between. And so the sufficiency of Jesus to reconcile us to God is eternal, is permanent, but we must hold on to it every day because the prince of the power of the air is at work even now in the sons of wrath to bring about a disheartened, disobedience, disgruntled, offended people who were called Christians but who somehow along the way got offended with God because he didn't do what, he thought they should, what they thought he should do. He didn't act how they thought he should act, and therefore they are disappointed. And if we find our identity in what Christ has already done, listen closely, we will never be disappointed in what we think he still has to do. If we find our identity in what Christ has always already done, sealed, done, our salvation is a complete work. We will never be disappointed in what we think he should do because our identity is not in what we think he should be doing. Our identity is in what he's already done. We live in the realm of done. We do not live in the realm of doing. And if you want to find your identity and want to find your encouragement and want to find the love of God and what you think you should be doing, you will be deceived, you will be disappointed, and you will be offended with God because God's ways are not our ways. Again, I always take us back to Isaiah 55. As the heavens are higher than the earth. It doesn't say as the sky. It says as the heavens. <laughs> And every now and then I, I, I uh, think about mind-boggling things, and then they boggle my mind so much that I... It's like the Milky Way, which is the galaxy in which we live in, our planet is in, they estimate it has a hundred billion stars. I mean, how do you even... But then they estimate there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. And the heavens are above that. So as the heavens are higher than the earth, says the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways? So since the prince of the power of the air works with principalities, rulers of darkness in the heavenly places, that's where the war is taking place. We can't fight the war here. We get there in prayer and worship. In worship, we get elevated to that sea of glass where there are 24 elders around the throne, where there are four beings with six wings with four faces, where there are myriads of angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And that is the realm where we need to walk every day. And for someone who says they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, amen. I don't want to serve God, but I want to be heavenly good in earthly places. I want the goodness of God to be manifest in my life as I walk in fellowship with him. So we were corrupt in our old nature, sinful in our practice, we possess no merit to have any claim whatsoever to God. But because of God's great love, it required his great love, it required his great mercy to remove that misery from us and to pardon us from our transgressions. One of the hardest, you know, Sermon on the Mount, again, if we had lived Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we'd live pretty awesome lives. But in, in Matthew 7, when Jesus says, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. That, to me, that is one of the more sobering passages of Scripture. People just kind of blow that off. But what he's saying when he says that is, if you don't forgive somebody, then you don't fully appreciate how rich in mercy God was and how great a love with which he loved you, and you don't fully understand the price that was paid for your salvation. Because if you fully understood that, forgiveness would not be an issue in your life. And we all have people, we've all had circumstances of people in our life that according to our measurement, we don't think they're worth forgiving. In my life. Um, got molested by a junior high teacher. Took me years, literally years and years and years before I ever told anybody, let alone forgave the man. But I justified, in fact, there were times I tried to, in my mind, figure out ways I could get even. It wasn't about forgiveness for me. It was about retaliation. It was about making the dude pay. But I had to come to a moment where I had to literally be before God in my brokenness and say, I forgive that man. I forgive him for the whole plot, everything involved in the scheme. I, I forgive him. That was a hard thing for me. But Jesus says, if you can't do that, then I can't forgive you. And if we can't do that, then what we're reading here right now if we don't fully, then we don't fully appreciate it. Jesus counts us as those sons of darkness because we haven't fully appreciated the fullness of the price that was paid for our forgiveness. So God's love is so great that it extends to any, the, to the children of wrath, to the molesters, to the murderers, to any, the, to the worst things you can think of. 
There was a, a girl in, I don't know what state it was. What was that thing we watched last night? Ohio. Ohio. Got pregnant in high school, didn't tell anybody. Um, was anorexic so she wouldn't show her pregnancy. But murdered her baby the day it was born, tried to burn it and bury it in the backyard, and her trial just ended this, this week. There was something intrinsically evil there to where someone would want to do that. But when God looks at that, he doesn't see her as any more evil than he saw me before I gave my heart to Jesus. In his great mercy, in his great, he pardons our transgression no matter how dastardly the deed. And so every reason for God's mercy and love is found in him, not us. That's what I had to reconcile in my heart. God's mercy and forgiveness is not found in me. It's found in him. And if I fully embrace his mercy and forgiveness, he then gives me what I need to be able to extend mercy and forgiveness to those who have wronged me, regardless of the wrong is. And that's something that each one of us has to reconcile in our lives in order to walk in the reconciliation that's made possible to us through Jesus. We have to stop <clears throat> this futility of trying to make ourselves lovable to God. I don't care how cute you are. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves lovable to God. Jesus did what makes us lovable. God can only look at us through Jesus. And when he looks at us through Jesus, he sees Jesus. He sees his blood, his brokenness. So there's nothing. That's back to what we talked about in Galatians. It's not Jesus plus something equals salvation. It's Jesus, period. And so there's, that there's nothing we can do. We, we, we simply have to receive his great love and recognize how unworthy of it we are. But at the same time, this, this grace is the secret to us living our life. It is the grace of God that allows people who are broken to not walk in an identity of brokenness, but to walk in an identity of wholeness because of his grace. <clears throat> that regardless of the sin that we've done, regardless of the thoughts we've done, the words we've said, the deeds we've done, this mercy, this grace is sufficient enough to make us lovable even in that. So we have the, the, the past, the present, and the future of God's work in individual reconciliation. So Jesus didn't just come to reconcile humanity. Here's the great thing about salvation. Jesus came to reconcile you. He came to reconcile me. My relationship with Jesus is not based upon you. Yes, we have a community, and we encourage one another, and, and we will hold each other accountable, and we'll address sin if we see it. But here's the thing. Jesus died for each one of us as a person, as an individual. This is what he says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's what it says. 
God loved you when you were dead. Dead to sin. Not, not dead to, to, that we didn't sin, dead because of sin. And, and, and because of that, he didn't wait, hallelujah, until we were lovable. He didn't wait until we were good enough, cute enough, nice enough. No. He loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses providing nothing lovable to him. There was nothing lovable about us when God sent his son to die for us. But he loved us anyway. And he didn't love us partially. He didn't pity us. He loved us unconditionally. And here's what he says, you know. So this is the requirement of salvation, that we do have to be dead, dead to every attempt to justify ourselves before God. So many people who wrestle with salvation try to say they're good enough. That We sing those songs today about the goodness of God. In the book of Mark, we have a guy who we don't know his name. We just simply know he's rich, he's young, and he has authority. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells the story, calls him the rich young ruler, and his first question to Jesus is this, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer to him was this, why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. So Jesus, being fully man and fully God, recognized that there was no goodness. There wasn't even enough good, good one himself to be called good. So if Jesus said, I'm not good enough to be called good, the only good one is the Father, how could we ever, ever become good enough for God to love us? We never could. There is nothing. Don't, don't matter how perfect we are, we'll never be good enough. And God, in his great mercy, loved us while we were still sinners. And the reason Jesus said to that rich young ruler that no one's good except God is because he didn't want that rich young ruler to try and say, well, I'm just like you, so therefore I should be good enough. Because when Jesus said, keep all the commandments, and you're good enough, he says, no problem, piece of cake, I'm done, I'm in. And Jesus says, oh, wait, 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 there's one more thing you got to do. Sell everything. Give it to the poor. And then follow me. And the saddest line in Scripture and it says the rich young man walked away because he was very rich. So you see, there is nothing. That exposed the young man's heart. No matter how good he thought he was, his goodness was not good enough to inherit eternal life. And Jesus wanted him to know that you may exemplify me in everything I do here as a man, but the man part of me will never be good enough for God. Because the man part is frail. That's why Jesus was given a new body when he resurrected from the dead. That's why he was everything was new about him. There is nothing good in us to make God want to love us, and we can never make ourselves good enough. So Jesus shared in our death so that we could share in his resurrection. He died for us so that we could be resurrected with him. This is exactly what Paul says. Made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. So Jesus died for us. He shared in our death so that we could share in his resurrection. So the old man is crucified. We're new creatures in Jesus. Old things pass away. All things become new. By grace, we've been saved. And Paul is compelled to add here that our salvation is a work of God's grace. It in no way involves any type of merit on our part. 
Our salvation, our rescue from spiritual death is God's work done for everyone who's undeserving. So nobody in this room deserves what God has given us. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. Not, you cannot do anything to earn his approval, to earn his favor. The only thing that gives us approval is when we enter into that throne room through the blood of Jesus, and he sees us through Jesus. And our present position right now is that we sit, now understand what he says, together in the heavenly places in Christ. Now understand what he says here. He doesn't say that we're sitting with Christ right now because a day will come when we will. The day's going to come when we will sit on thrones and rule. But right now it says we are in heavenly places in Christ, not within Christ. And that's how we have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God as a father because we are in Jesus. He sees us as adopted sons and daughters because he sees us in Christ. But there will come a day after the return of the king and after the, the great resurrection that we will not only be in Christ, we'll be with Christ because we will be like Christ completely, fully transformed. New bodies, new heaven, new earth, everything new and shiny and perfect. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't sit in heavenly places with Jesus, not yet. We sit in heavenly places in Jesus. And since our life and identity is in Christ, because he sits in heavenly places, so do we. So, and it's the exceeding richness of his grace, which I've talked about. God has as much grace, I think we forget this, God has as much grace as you want. Let that sink in for a minute. God has as much grace as you want, and then there's more. You want this much grace? He says it's yours, but just know if you want this much, it's yours. If you want this much, it's yours. Grace all the way up to the heavenlies. God has as much grace as you want, as much grace as you need, and all the demands ever made on the grace of God will never impoverish him and will never, ever diminish his mercy. God's grace is sufficient. It's always there. It's always available, and it's always working in us. And one way to see the greatness of the grace of God is to see how God begs us to receive it. God begs us to take his mercy, to put his mercy upon us. You know, when, when we offer a gift to somebody, and, and it's, it's a big gift, and they're kind of shocked, the, the reaction is, no, 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 no you, you don't want, I don't want to do that. Thank you, but no, no thank you. You know, and, and they refuse it. And sometimes people else as well, okay, I offered. If you don't want it, that's fine. I'll go away. That's not that way with God. God does not do this when we refuse his mercy. When he says, I have this gift for you, and we say, well, I really don't deserve it. He goes, you're right. But here, let me give you some more. You know, that wasn't, here, here here's some more. It, you can't refuse his mercy. He wants us to take his mercy. He literally begs us to receive this free gift. And he says, Paul says this, verse 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So for by grace we've been saved, this, this incredible gift given to us, the totally undeserving. And listen, it doesn't say by faith you've been saved. Think about that for a moment. Faith, you know, faith in of itself, it's faith that is covered in the grace of God that gives us salvation. We have to believe. We have to have the faith to believe that Jesus did what he actually did. But believing it, remember, back to this, believing in God is not enough. It's embracing his grace to be able to come before him and say, yes, I am broken, I am worthless, and I realize there is nothing I can do to earn your favor and your love, but your grace makes it possible for me. So I believe, Jesus, you died for me, and I received the redemptive work of the cross, and therefore faith and grace combined together is what brings about salvation. So just to say you believe, we also understand that grace is always at work in our life. Always, always. It's, it's the power, that, with that power, the act of faith, you know, God never be believes for any man, no more than he repents for him. We repent for ourselves, we believe for ourselves. It's in that faith that he then pours out grace, enabling ourselves to believe in him. And so this is, to me, the essential place of prayer in evangelism, you know, since God initiates salvation, we should begin our evangelism with asking God to do the initiation. Every day, and sometimes, a lot of times by myself, but even with other people, every day I'm at that temple praying for the salvation of Jackson Moon. And I have to tell you something. There are some days my conversation with God is a little, is this really going to happen? I mean, you know how long I've been doing this? And it's just, you know, one guy. And a lot of times he's the only person there. I mean, come on, God, how hard is this, really? You know, just encounter the man. You're giving dreams and visions to Muslims. They're seeing Jesus at the foot of their bed. They're accepting him. Can you just please show up at Jack's, the foot of Jackson's bed tonight, tell him you're the son of God to repent, and let's move on. But God's got a plan to do it a different way. My job is to pray for God to initiate something of his beauty for Jackson to embrace and asking God to grant the ability for those, for Jackson, whom I want to believe to be saved and to know that the moment it happens is the moment it's supposed to happen. He's sovereign. He's in control. God cannot do what I do, and I can't do what God does, but we do it together, and his kingdom comes and power and authority in the way he wants it. So I still will say, without faltering, I believe Jackson Moo is going to come to salvation. I believe he is going to have an impact on the Buddhists in Azusa. And I'm going to continue to pray that. And then if I die before it happens, it's your job to keep praying it. Because it's going to happen. God is going to initiate this. And so we have, if salvation was the accomplishment of man in any way, we could brag about it. He says, salvation is not of works, so we can't boast about anything. So if there's anything you and I could do to get saved, then we could say, well, yeah, the first thing I did was I quit doing drugs. 
You know, or the first thing I did was I never looked at porn on my computer again. Or the first thing I did was I never said a swear word again. And then God accepted me. There's nothing you can do. Those are all good things. But the truth of the matter is you could come to God with all those things and he'll set you free from them. So there's nothing we can boast in, you know. And then he goes on to say this, that we are his workmanship. Um, and the, literally, the idea is, if you look this up, is that it says, it literally means that we are his beautiful poem. So just let that sink in for a moment. You know, there's a scripture that says God sings over us. I'm always, you know, I'm always wondering what the fragrance of heaven is, the fragrance of Christ is. And I'm always wondering what the melody and the words are to the song that God sings over me. And I pretty much know this. It's just, hey, Rick, I love you. Just sings that over me all the time. Or he sings, hey, my grace is sufficient for that. I love you. But he says, Paul says we're his workmanship. We are this beautiful poem that God is still writing. Every Jerusalem Bible, our life is a line in that poem. You know? Uh, in the Jerusalem Bible, it, it translates work of art, that we are his work of art, his poem. God is making us into who he desires us to be. And every day he shapes us a little bit more. Every day as a poem, he writes something about our destiny upon our heart. And our responsibility is to walk so close to him that it manifests in our life. And if we walk out the poem that God is writing about us, we will stand before him faithful. When I was reading that magazine this week about 10 reasons your church doesn't grow, I found myself getting sucked back into what I used to do 20 years ago, what my motivations were, everything I was doing. And the moment God told me or asked me, and thank God he asked me and my wife at the same time on the same night without telling each other. And then we both looked at each other and said, he's telling us to do this, isn't he? But to walk away and to not focus on building a church, but focus on praying in the church of Azusa. To walk away from the structure, the friends, the authority, the position, everything we had, and to find this house, to build it, and to simply pray in his will and his heart for the city. And 15 years of doing it, you know, that's all we're here about. We're seeing it happen. And I, look, we can only fit 40 people in this room anyway. So when they say that however many chairs you have in your building, studies say that you only fill 80% of them. So we're at max capacity anyway. So I threw the magazine away, by the way. Um, so here's the thing. God's love is a transforming love. It meets us where we are. When we receive this love, it always takes us where we should be going. The love of God that saves our soul also changes our life. Our life is as truly created out of nothing as were the first heavens and the first earth. God's grace does not improve the old nature into new. It completely creates a new nature. 
let that sink in for a moment. God didn't take the old you and make it into the new you. He didn't use the old stuff. You are a new creature. You are a new creation. He took nothingness and made you again. And he ma he's making you every day into who he's made you to be. And what God is making of us is active in how we walk out a relationship with him. And it's evidence that we are walking as one of God's chosen. And remember, work play no part in securing our salvation. We prove our faith by how we live our life, which some would call works, but how we work out our salvation in front of him. So here's, here's my conclusion. Trust Jesus. Pretty simple. By grace you've been saved through faith, so I urge you to trust Jesus. Number one, trust him with your sin. Number two, trust him with your relationships. Trust him with your job. Trust him with your health. Can I tell you, these last three weeks of my wife being sick have been one of the, it's been awful for her. But in our, in our marriage, I'm always the fix-it guy. I'm, I'm, I'm always the guy who makes everything work out. I can't fix this. No matter how much we prayed, no matter how much we cried out to God, she still had to walk through it. It was really hard for me. Harder for her because she had to do it. But I had to trust him with her health. I had to say, okay, we're going to keep doing our part, and we're going to trust you to do your part however long this takes. Trust him with your money. Trust him with your leisure time. Trust him with your future all the way into eternity because he's a great God of wonders. He makes the dead alive. He sets captives free, and he will spend eternity lavishing the riches of his kindness on those who trust him. So remember, two two-word phrases to walk out every day. Number one, but God. You were deserving of this, but God gave you this. And when he gave you this, the next two words are trust Jesus. But God, trust Jesus, and you will walk out your destiny. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word says this about itself. It is alive, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword cutting to the very heart of man. We thank you, God, that you cut deep today, that you stabbed us right where we needed to be poked. And we ask God for continued revelation. I ask for each one of us, God, to simply each day, as, as the psalmist said, the steadfast love of God never changes. His mercies are new every morning. God, I pray that every morning we awaken to the reality that yesterday's mercies, all that's been spent, but we got a whole new batch today. And they're sufficient to walk out any circumstance. And we thank you, God, that we are no longer sons of disobedience, sons of wrath, but instead, we are the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High, who by the spirit of adoption are able to say, Abba, Daddy. And we ask that you set this on our hearts and seal it in Jesus' name. Amen.